All right, well, welcome back to our study in the book of Romans. Uh, today we're in lesson 18, uh, simply entitled Sanctification Part 2. We're in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. So let me read the scriptures and get us started this morning. Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. Here's what it says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Paul introduces now that section of the book that we introduced last week thematically on the whole issue of sanctification, and that is the fruit of justification. How the Spirit takes the Word and makes us more like Jesus. And so these opening verses are Paul's salvo into that occasion. And so let's dive right in. Paul says, So what should we say then? (laughs) And then he puts a question in front of us that's obviously something that he thinks people will think based on the first five chapters on justification. And so he starts and simply says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now the question seems crazy at first. I mean, who thinks that's okay? Should we sin a lot more? But really, it's a logical extension of understanding what Paul has said. It's not correct, but it is logical to think that Paul might be encouraging you to sin more. Huh? Let's look at that. A. Paul begins with a question that points us back to chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now, remember how Paul has finished that chapter. It says this, The law came in so that the offense would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Summary. Paul's basically saying this. You know, you can't out-sin grace. Now, that doesn't mean in your personal life you should go crazy. But the implication of those last two verses that he finishes the whole section on salvation is grace was more than any sins that anybody could do. Sin increased under the law. God added more grace. There's no amount of sin that can keep God's love from reaching sinners. The grace of God is greater than sin. There's no sin that can keep us from the love of God. He's going to go on and say that in Romans 8, right? It could be logical, though we as Christians now in the 20th century, after 20 centuries of Bible teaching out of the book of Romans, know better. But to that first group in Rome who received his letter, and in that first century where they are looking at all of this and understanding the Old Testament and what Christ has done, there's still questions about how are we sanctified? Do we use the law? That's going to be chapter 7. Is the law the means of sanctification? 
How does the Spirit work? That's chapter 8. But in chapter 6, it has to do, what part is God's part? What part is mine? And how do I get out of the control that sin had in my life 12 minutes before? And so that's what he's dealing with here. It would be logical to think that based on that equation, that you would pump up your sin so you could get more grace. Right? It's just logical to think that. Well, how do I get more grace if it's not through sinning more? Do you mean God has a different equation for sanctification? Dave's sin. There's actually no chart that could have held this illustration. Okay? But we have to limit it for board space. And again, God's grace is greater than all my sin, says the hymn writer. So now that that has been true in salvation, what is the equation related to sin that we are to understand in sanctification? How does sin relate to grace? How do I get more grace? How do I grow in grace? How does God's grace empower me to live the Christian life? How does it get initiated? How does it get originated? How does it get pumped up? If it's not through sin, and God is not just going to give me grace because I'm a sinner, there must be another means by which I receive grace sufficient to be more holy. And so, let's continue in B. Paul is accused, apparently, of offering cheap grace and easy believism. Let me stop there. Paul is answering a question. He's he's putting a question forward that I would think, especially because the book of Galatians already exists, that Paul has addressed in other places, where Paul is preaching such easy way to believe in Jesus. Chapters 3, 4, and 5. It's not by works, not by rights, not by ritual, all that stuff. Paul is making it so clear. If you trust in what Jesus did on the cross, you'll be saved. The Jews were saying of him, This is antinomianism. It's anti-law. You don't have to do anything? Do you mean a Las Vegas Raiders fan could go to heaven? (laughs) Paul, and now I understand this having grown up Catholic, what a Catholic would say to you when you say, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So you're saying you can do anything you want and still go to heaven. You're saying you could be a murderer and go to heaven? You're saying that you could believe in Jesus and just do whatever you want. That's what it sounds like. And Paul is beginning chapter 6 by saying, based on what he just said, so we just do what we want now? Is that what the gospel is? Paul was, in Galatians he addresses this as well, was accused of preaching a cheap grace, an easy believism. Making it too easy for sinners to go to heaven. Thank God that there's an easy way to go to heaven. But Paul also is going to take this chapter to tell us, but that's not the end of the story. It's easy to get in. It's easy. Because God's doing all the work. But in sanctification, it's a mutual effort. Salvation is monergism. God acts. Sanctification is synergism. God acts and we act. God empowers us, but we still read our Bible. God empowers us, but we still witness. God empowers us, but we still attend church. We have to do something in sanctification, whereas in salvation, God did everything. 
Paul's accused because, see, the issue is the confusion created by attempting to gain sanctification by the same means we obtain justification. People who believe that you are sanctified by faith alone. I just believe in what Jesus did for me. I trust in that, and then God will channel this grace through me, and I am passive in sanctification. We've all read a book like that. We've all heard seminars like that. We may have all believed that at one point. That sanctification is gained the same way that salvation is gained. You trust in what God did, and in sanctification, it's opening yourself up and being a passive channel of the grace of God because you can't trust your own flesh. So you have to just give way and let God do it. Paul is addressing this question of how are you sanctified? And if you're sanctified the same way you're saved, then it would lead you back to this idea. I can't do anything about my sin. I just have to trust the Lord. If that's how you're saved, and God will take care of my sin, then over here your sins, how will God take care of them as a Christian? If you believe it's the same exact way, God takes care of my sin nature by faith. I just trust Him. And God channels the power through me. And I act like Jesus. With no effort of my own. No. Now, if you're in here today and you've been at Hope Bible Church for any length of time, I would think that you already know, well, that's not true. Right? But, as I mentioned last week, and I won't belabor it, many people come from godly Christians who love Jesus, come from different backgrounds about how to be sanctified. And uh, some from the Keswick movement, some from the work of Hudson Taylor, Alan Redpath, A.W. Tozer, Watchman Nee. Any of those names familiar to you? Okay. Those, are, those men, and there are women who teach in that, Anna Whitehall-Smith. Uh, there's a whole line of Christians who are godly people. So if they have godly lives, you've got to think, they're drinking the right juice. And there's a sanctification view that's much like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is the one verse they love the most. Anybody quote it for me? Go ahead, Morag. Say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens it. Oh, that's in Philippians. That's right. That's very good. That's right. But that's a great verse. A great verse that didn't work. Galatians 2.20. Somebody look it up for us. That's right. That's right. It's Christ who lives in me. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, right? I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and died for me. And, and okay, That verse in Galatians 2 is often used for this sanctification. It's not me. It's Christ. And he's doing all the stuff through me. Very good. That's right. That is the very first requirement. That's right. That's right. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's right. Therefore, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, right, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is a good and perfect acceptable. That's right, exactly, perfect. Our part, it's not simply Jesus through, or else that verse would say, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, to passively let Jesus think through you. That's right, Ann. That's right. Work out your own salvation. Okay, you guys can help me because this is going to be the straight dope. What are some other verses that would indicate that in order to live a holy life as a Christian, you would have to be active? What's that? Be holy as I am holy. A command. Very good. Present your bodies, right? And renew your mind. That's right. That's right, Ephesians one, uh, 4, right? That's right, Ephesians 4. Anything else? Any verses in the New Testament would seem like we have to get involved. <laughs> Anything else? Go ahead. That's cool. Take your time. Yeah, John. Make your call and election sure that you have your body Beautiful. Make your call and election sure. It's not just a passive, hey, I think I got the whammy, I must be okay. Right? Yeah, Karen. If you're truly my disciples, you will obey my word. Okay, this is a basic construction of the New Testament, right? That we are to act. But now, it is possible, and then we'll jump back in our text, it is possible to go too far in that direction. Sanctification is totally up to me. It's what I do. But Paul has given that idea of the idea of uh, we plant and then some water, but God gives the increase in all things. And it's God who ultimately gives sanctification. All right, let's talk then at the bottom of the page. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes. Truth. All right. Let's talk about the little illustration at the bottom of the page because that is the key to everything Paul is going to say. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. But as I see it, I think that will key us into what Paul is saying in this entire chapter. Um, three types of sin. When Paul says here in, Ephesians, uh, in Romans 6, what are we to say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What is he talking about? Defining sin properly for us is going to help us. What some people unfortunately have said in Romans 6 is that sin is almost like your personal sins. It's on the picture. Or a lifestyle of sinning, and that is are we to continue doing sins individually? Or are we continuing in a lifestyle of sin? Well, God forbid that that should be the case. But if you take that as what sin means here, then you either start into perfectionism. Should we sin at all? No, no, Paul says. Well, you're going to sin. So where is this going? What Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6 is the ruling power of sin. And what Paul is going to share with us is the move over from Sinotopia to Sanctotopia. And what Paul is saying is, 
Should we continue to allow the master of our life from our former life to be the one who's in control now? He's talking about the ruling power of sin in the old man, the flesh. Should we continue under the lordship, rulership, or mastery of a former empowered authority in our lives? Before we were believers, sin, the principle of sin, within us was our master. And we did its bidding, according to Paul. But we have been moved from that by the death of Christ into a completely different world with a new master, a new lord, a new authority in our lives. And so what Paul is talking about here is not that we've actually died to individual sins. Because when you read Romans 6, it sounds like you died to sin. Well, if you think it's individual sins, you're like, I still sin. Or if it's life of sin, sinning. But that's not what we've died to. We are to die more and more to that. We are to put off sin, individual sins. But what we have died to, and we're going to talk through this here, we have died to the authority that used to tell us what to do, and we no longer have to. Sin. Sin cannot be your master anymore. Christ is our master. Now, it's still possible to sin. I know that for a fact. I, I did it twice last year, as I said. And just to make sure that I was still with everybody. Okay? And so what Paul is going to give us here is the view of how did ruling sin in our life get broken from its authority and what does that practically mean to me every day? Let's go to page two. The book of Romans is awesome. That's so awesome. Page two. Let's go to verse two. Far from it, Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Should we continue to sin so God's grace will get greater? Nope. That's not how you get grace as a Christian. And Paul says, that is ridiculous. Far from it. That is not the way it's done. What Paul does say is, how should we who died to sin still live in it? Again, now we have to understand. On page 2, I'm kind of trying to develop what is Paul talking about when he says sin and us not being alive to it any longer. A, Paul's strongest possible objection. That's what he says throughout the book. Romans 6, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Far from it. Romans 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. Romans 9, what should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. Paul has these statements in, in Romans only to say, Guys, I'm going to make a ridiculous statement. Go with me. <laughs> this is bad. And so that's where we are. B. Paul points to our position in Christ as the reason the question is absurd. Our union with Christ is the reality that changes everything. Understanding Romans chapter 6 is to understand all of Paul's doctrine of sanctification. I'm only going to read verses 4 to 11 with some commentary 
because that's reserved for next week, Lord willing. But understand what Paul is saying. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Uh, what baptism? Water, spirit, John, John the Baptist's baptism, the baptism of Moses, baptized into the cloud. And if we have been baptized into his death, what? We were baptized into his death, I thought we were baptized into Christ in his life. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, the old man, the power of sin, the, the, the sin within, was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's the key. It's not done away with in the ontological sense. That is, sin did not disappear. The old man did not go away when we got saved, right? Uh, we didn't wake up that morning, the first day as a Christian, and say, I don't have an old nature anymore. Adam's gone. I'm totally good, right? But rather, what has gone away is the power over you. The commanding power that sin had. It's broken. And so what Paul goes on to say is, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from sin. Then he gives the illustration of Christ and how we should relate it. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Was death ever a master over Christ? Uh, just for one day. Or three. Right? Christ submitted to the mastery of death when he submitted to becoming sin for us. Christ was under the mastery of sin and death for about three days. But when he rose from the dead, neither sin nor death had mastery over him again. He will never die again, and he certainly will never become sin again. But for three days, he pictures what we would have without him. That we ourselves were under sin, and we were under the penalty of death, and they were our masters. But Christ has broken that, and anyone in Him is now freed from sin and death. Because He has mastery over them, and has, the grave has been defeated. And so, what, what is Romans 6 telling us? That we are in union with Christ by virtue of faith, and that union is not mystical, we don't have to have feelings of union in our heart, it's not looking for feelings of unionness. It's a defined fact that when Christ died, the power of death and the power of sin were broken in our life as masters. We're still going to die unless we are raptured. And we're still going to sin in this life. You don't get to choose about the death part, but you do get to choose how much sin you want to do before you die. And death is not our master because it cannot hold us in the grave. That's what the power of, of death is. That it can hold you there. But it has no power to do that. It can only sting you, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. But it cannot hold you. It could not hold Christ, it cannot hold you. 
And so that's the beauty of Paul's picture here. So verse 11. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, Paul is not starting out by saying, just to be pedantic, he's not saying, hello, um, he's not saying, you're free from sin now, everything's going to be good, you'll never sin again. He is saying, you're free from the power of sin as your master. You don't have to give in to it. But the rest of the next three chapters will be about, but it's going to be a huge fight. Right? And in Romans 7, Paul's clearly going to say, I myself am defeated by sin on occasions. And in fact, the stuff I want to do, I don't always do that. And the stuff I don't want to do, I do. But Paul's not saying that's his whole lifestyle. But he says, we all are defeated by sin on occasions. But we don't have to live in sin. And we don't have to stay in sinatopia. Once you leave Las Vegas, you're free to move anywhere. Scott, you got a question. Oh, well, we're not done yet. Um, he does go on to say, you must make a choice not to. But in these first few verses, he's talking about the indicative part, not the imperative. He's indicative being what is true before he goes to what do you do with that truth. What Paul is telling us is that we are, these things are true of us. The rest of the chapter clearly says, now, don't, don't give your body to the sin as you once did to its slavery, but give your body to the slavery of God. Do you see what I'm saying, Scott? But you have to start with the indicative, what Paul starts with. Um, so in, in Genesis 3, where Satan tempted them, they did disobey. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's where sin... That's right, where sin started, and that's right, sin started in this world. Yeah. All right. All right, C. Our death to sin is an accomplished fact, not a status to be obtained. Um, we are to live in the reality that it does not have master over us, or mastery over us. Uh, we are not attempting to kill sin, we're attempting to kill particular sins. Not the authority of sin. It has already been destroyed. D. We are dead to the principle of sin positionally, but the possibility remains of being alive to it. Practically, that is. The difference between sin, sins, and sinning. Sin being the principle of sin. Sins are individual sins. And sinning is a lifestyle of sin. We are dead to the rule and reign of sin. It no longer is our master to be pedantic. Verses 12 to 14. Therefore... Sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. There you go, Scott. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Paul's going to use all kinds of terms in the next three chapters relative to our old person, the old man, the law of sin and death, etc. I'm not going to define these, but only to recommend to you the idea that we're going to. And that is the old man, the sin nature, and the flesh. Sounds like a really bad rock band. (laughs) Or maybe an attorney's office you don't want to go to. Old man, sin nature, and the flesh. You know, 
<laughs> but these are different ways to talk about Adam has not completely gone. We're not in Adam anymore. But Adam is still in us. Old Adam. A real friend to us. It's the old person that we were, in many version, that still desires to deceive us. It works through the mind to deceive, Paul is going to tell us in these chapters. The old man, the flesh, is an active force within. It's the inside of the Trojan horse. And it is actively working against all of your work of the Spirit and actively against all of your efforts for holiness. And it continuously works against your mind to deceive you, to attempt to get you to not believe God's Word, to despair. And it tries to deceive you through the faculty of affections, what you love and desire. And the old man continues to still speak to those things in an attempt to get you to sin. Now, it's not a person of itself. It doesn't have its own will as such. So how does it work? Well, that's Romans 7 and 8, and we're not going to go at all today. But Paul talks about the law of sin and death and the law of the sin in the mind. And he's going to tell us that this thing is actively causing these things. And that's why Paul will say, the things I want to do, I don't always do, but I find in myself a law of sin and death. But there's a greater law within me. And that whole battle within, Paul is telling us that it's real. You're not crazy. Well, let me say it a different way. You might be crazy. But you're not crazy for thinking that there's a battle inside of you. And you are not always at peace within. And you think of yourselves as a Christian. Why did I do that? What in the world was I thinking? I must be crazy. All sin is crazy. And this constant battle within, for every Christian, Paul has warned us about and told us about, we do not have to give in to it, but it is a war. Let me give two illustrations, and then we'll talk a little bit, okay? The territory and the really bad party. Well, the territory goes back to my move here. Sinotopia, Sanctotopia. We used to live in Sinotopia, and we had a master, and right across the river is Sanctotopia. The problem is that sometimes when people move from one location to another, they don't adapt to the new place, and they don't adopt the new culture. They act like the rules of home that they used to believe are the rules of here. Uh, some people move from totalitarian uh, nations to more free nations, but still they'll report that for years they feared that the police were going to find them or that they would be brought into jail for no reason. or what, they, they fear. They run in fear even though they've moved to a place where theoretically that's not true. And in simple ways, you know, Carla and I moved six months ago and I still have to remind myself about traffic ways or whatever from California to here that I act like I'm still in California at times and then I realize, rah row I'm going to get killed out there if I don't change the way I'm doing it. This is the concept here. That when we first become Christians, we are so used to a pattern of sin and a lifestyle of culture and people and the way we do things that it takes a while to walk out of all of that. There's an immediate break with the power of sin. No question. And if that hasn't happened in our lives, then we probably, well, we're not converted because that's what happens. There's an immediate break with the power of sin. 
but it sure takes a long time to adapt to the culture by memorizing scripture, by getting to know the new the, the new culture of the scriptures, by renewing our mind, by setting our affections on things above. And all of that takes time in sanctification. And God is working through all that, but the problem is the really bad party illustration. Once you move to the other place, and you finally get comfortable with sanctitopia, as a young Christian, you may start feeling like, I got this, I don't live over there anymore. I'm never going to act like that again. And then you're in the Christian party, if you will, with your friends from church. And you have a particularly bad party where you act like a jerk, or you sin, or you say something offensive to another Christian. And you're like, I thought I wasn't going to do that anymore. And you realize that everybody's looking at you funny. Why? And this is the crazy part of the story. We as Christians, because we bring the old man with us everywhere, it's like we show up to a party with a chain around our leg. And we are dragging a dead man. And everywhere we go, this dead guy is with us. Adam, the old guy. And sometimes, because we're crazy, we get, hey Adam, why don't you do some party tricks? I mean, while you're here, I used to be funny at parties. Adam. And that's what continues to happen. The really bad party is... At any time, the dead guy can get invited to live. He's dead to being in charge, but that's what walking in the flesh is. Walking in the flesh is deciding, I'm going to give him the podium for 10 minutes. Or, I just don't feel like being in charge here. Or, that's too hard. And the flesh wins out, and it's a really bad party. And you think, what in the world? Am I really a Christian? I just acted like that. You know, the devil does the thing called the double whammy. You know what that is? The double whammy, called by other things too, is this. The devil tempts us to sin. So it's like he shows you sin. (laughs) Yeah, okay. You can be a Vegas fan. Look at this. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm getting crab cakes with that too. And then after you sin. He comes along with a second whammy. Right. How could a Christian do that? No Christian does that. Now we know that Satan doesn't talk to us every day. The flesh is good enough to do this. And the world. But the reality is they're all working against us in that regard. We're tempted and we're also guilted. We're tempted and we're also defeated. And so what Paul is dealing with in us in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that dual reality. You are now free from the principal power. You've been moved to another country. Your master is over here. Welcome aboard. And then there's the struggle to live there in the mind, the will, and the affections as opposed to continuously visiting over here. The problem is neutrality doesn't work. Moving over and then not having activity that continues to grow basically means you're going to go back across emotionally. If you don't get in the Word, you don't pray, right? So all those things. All right, questions or thoughts on what I've said, not on your favorite question about balloon animals or, or how many children were on the ark or whatever it was. But John, everybody answered, yeah, Brian. That is, and, and again, you know, we're talking through Paul's, what he's going to say in these three chapters. But that is a big part of it, of him in chapter 8 particularly, about suffering and the work of the Spirit and the groaning within us because of the fallen world. And how God, that's the big surprise as people go over, like, hey, now we're over here in Delight Village. But it's God himself who uses suffering 
even in Sanctotopia, to cause greater sanctification. And that's beautiful. What he, what he said, if you didn't hear him, was, over here it was like, I'm going to be a better me. Uh, this is going to be my best life now, right? This is, I'm going to be a little God and all that, but now it is all Christ-focused and totally a different paradigm. That's, that's really good. Good and godly Christians struggle with the notion of, am I to seek rewards, for example? Or should I seek my own good in any way? Or am I supposed to be simply a stoic as a Christian? And, you know, uh, Jonathan Edwards and then John Piper in our generation have said the things like, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And that, that for us to long for the greatest thing in the universe, which is God, and be in His presence, uh, actually is a reward to us. You know, seeking our own good is not wrong, but it's seeking it in what? Because the more we get to know God, it is the better for us. And so that's actually, the more you seek God, you're seeking your own good. And so that is not a wrong. But, how do you get there? You stay in my class. All right? That's what you do. You wait, you wait for chapter 7. Okay. Very good. Yes, ma'am. That's a good question. So, you know, these are all loose illustrations. Because uh, you'll find, and this may be a big surprise, that Paul never actually uses the term synotopia. Um, you know, not even looking ahead, you know. Uh, uh, so, so the two, I think, I think you've hit it well. Uh, no, you never go back. If you're truly born again, you will never be lost. And you're not going that. Absolutely, we all do. We all do. So, um, and to, but anyway, but to, oh, I'm sorry. To that point, if... Nobody goes back. You don't get unsaved. My point is we act in that manner. To, to live in the flesh is really the point. Now we're talking about sanctification, not salvation. So my illustrations are more of that. We used to not live... All right, let's wait. Okay. We used to live here both because we couldn't escape and we did all of its activities. Sanctification's view that Paul is saying is you have been permanently moved. You will never completely go back there. And then that's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, in which God promises that you will never be lost, you will never be completely fall back, you will never do any of those if you're truly born again. But it is possible, as a Christian, thus all the commands in the New Testament not to do it, it is possible to live in such a way as to displease the Lord at times, and to give in to the flesh. And, and that's why in Galatians 5 it says, walk in the Spirit, and don't walk in the flesh. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians, or don't quench it. So it's possible to live like a pagan at times, but to be truly born again. And so, otherwise, you'd be saying, hey, once you're born again, you never sin. But Paul, you know, so it's possible to give power, authority, to someone who doesn't have authority. It's possible to call that old boss in Sinatopia and say, I'm going to give you the reins for 10 minutes. We don't think of that being active, but every time we give in to sin, we're giving the reins to our old authority. So, yeah, but you can never go back permanently. If someone goes back in lifestyle forever, and they live like the old Adam, and that's their whole lifestyle, well, then they, they weren't born again. But that line is like, who, who determines that? But that's the point, yeah. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, yeah. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, but... God is faithful, will not suffer us to be tempted. Yeah. Um, your, so your question is, on, on that one, it's simply telling you, as a believer, there's no categories of sin that will come up that God cannot give you grace to get out of. But you have to choose to get out of those. 
they're not instantaneous, right? It's not, it's not a parachute you have to, with, that doesn't have a ripcord. You're going to have to use the ripcord when you use the parachute of God's grace. Uh, God does not automatically cause us to do His, his will. Um, and so there's no sin that's greater than God's grace, is what it's saying. But that grace is activated by obedience there. It's God, you know, good, we're all jumping ahead of Paul, but we're good. All right, no, that's okay. That's okay, I invited it. All right, back to our text, page three. All right, verses three and four. I, I think one of the Greek words here is synotopia, but I don't, I don't remember. Or do you not know, top of page three, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. Paul is speaking of our position in Christ relative to sin by virtue of spirit baptism, and in my estimation, not water baptism. Uh, baptism into Christ occurred at the moment of our regeneration and our conversion and not at the time of our water baptism. Uh, Otherwise, you'd have the problem of you're not really born again and you're not in the family of God until you got water baptized, which is problematic. But 1 Corinthians 12, of course, tells us, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Of course, it's so great that it's in the book of 1 Corinthians because the Corinthian church is the worst church uh, until you get to the book of Revelation. It's the worst church in the apostolic age up till John. Uh, Corinth, Corinth is just one bad idea after another. And so Paul's writing to them, as you know, in those two books is like, okay, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong and you're doing that wrong and it's bad. But yet... Speaking to the believers at Corinth, he says of them, all of you were baptized into Christ. All the believers there. And all of you were made to drink of the Spirit. There's not different elite groups or people who didn't get it because they weren't as spiritual. And so this idea of being baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit is something that happens to us instantaneously at the time of our salvation. Uh, Point two, since it is belief in the gospel that justifies, whole, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the whole point of chapters 1 to 5, Paul is always careful to distinguish between the gospel and water baptism. For example, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says about visiting the Corinthians, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's one of my favorite verses of Paul, where he's like, Baptize everybody you want, man. Uh, But I didn't get called to baptize people. If Paul thought baptism was part of the gospel, he would say it totally different, right? He says, I was called by God to baptize people in the water, but he wasn't. In fact, he says in this passage, as you know, he he says, now wait a minute, I don't think I baptized anybody. Oh wait, there was the house of Stephanus. There might have been a few other people, but his point is, I do water baptisms occasionally, like as a public act when I get called upon, but that's not what I'm about. I'm about the gospel, and so to to continue on. But to preach the gospel, not with cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would would not be made of no effect. So water baptism comes after conversion as a symbol. We all know that. 
If you had to wait until water baptism to be in Christ, then you aren't saved until you were water baptized. Paul has spent five chapters teaching us that no rite, ritual, symbol, obedience, act, or work has any merit towards justification. The Bible tells us that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The beauty there is simply this. We know that there's more than one baptism in the Bible. So back to it. How many baptisms? Well, there's the baptism that's mentioned in Corinthians that speaks back to Moses that they were, the people who came out of Egypt were baptized into Moses. That's weird. So Moses had like a million people in him? Okay. It's a picture. We'll talk about that. So they were baptized into Moses in the cloud. We also know there was the baptism of John, right? Uh, the baptism of John is calling the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and there's a baptism of repentance. That is, you agree with God that Israel's in trouble. It needs its Messiah to come. And he, acting like, uh, John the Baptist acting like Elijah there, is calling them out to the wilderness to be baptized in preparation for the Messiah to come. We also know there is the baptism of the Christian baptism. Right? There is our baptism, and that is water baptism, uh, is commanded of us, Matthew chapter 28, that when we believe, we are to be baptized. But then, there's not a separate baptism, I'm going to explain, but there's a separate incident, and that is Ephesians chapter 19. And what's cool about that one is, before the cross, you have the illusion of the Moses baptism, and you have John's baptism before the cross, preparing people for the kingdom. And then you have Christian baptism, which what we teach by immersion. And not as a separate baptism, but a separate incident in Ephesians 19 that I want to mention really quick. People will often ask in membership, Hey, I was baptized as a child, so does that count as my baptism here? Or, I was baptized you know, by a water hose at an amusement park and at a youth rally, and I wonder if that will count towards immersion and whatever. And since the Bible says there's only one baptism, so should I get rebaptized or anything? And in Ephesians 19, we have the incident where Paul, I'm sorry, Acts 19, where Paul goes to the, I kept saying Ephesians 19. Hey man, in the Greek text. Cynotopia in Ephesians 19. Yeah, when I looked around and people were like, Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, and this is long, of course, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he speaks to a group there of men in a Bible study, and he talks to them, and he's like, so, did you guys receive the Spirit when you believed? And they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They must have gone to Dallas Seminary. That is where I went. <laughs> but we're cessationists, so I always use it anyway. All right. But they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, then what baptism did you read? Where are you in the history? I don't know where you're at. And they said, well, we're back at John's baptism. They didn't even know about Jesus. They just knew that he was coming. So they had the faith of that baptism. 
Now, if he just wanted new members in his church, Paul could have said, that's going to be good enough. Your baptism back then, it was a baptism. It had faith behind it. Instead, he baptized them then in the name of Jesus. Because baptism doesn't do anything for us. Baptism is an agreement with the message that God is preaching at that moment. And it's a decision to come under the water or come under the teaching, under the authority of what's being taught, and agreeing with it. And so they're baptized in the name of Jesus because they now have received that new message. And so baptism is a symbol of the authoritative teaching that God has in coming under it. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's spirit baptism, right? It's obviously spirit baptism that he is talking about there. He's not talking about the forms of water baptism. But one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here in Romans 6, you're baptized in water, but into Christ. You're not baptized in water, but rather into Christ. Now, I've left these notes here at the back, as I usually do. If you're new today, you'll know that I sometimes put two, three pages of notes at the back of my notes that have to do with referencing something or eschatology or whatever. I don't intend to go through all of this teaching on baptism. This is for your purposes. Uh, But in simple fashion, I want to tell you what is here on page three at the bottom. A brief theology of baptism, unless maybe you're confused or you need some more ammunition. Some verses on spirit baptism at the bottom of page 3, how John the Baptist pointed to it, and it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost as a starting point, and how we received that. Page 4, a little bit more about water baptism and what it does do and what it doesn't do. And the biggest point is this. If, if water baptism was intended to save, that's why, it, that's why we're supposed to do it. It's really hard to explain why Jesus was baptized. If water baptism always means getting in the water washes away your sin, or it's meritorious towards God, you can't put Jesus in the water. Jesus was symbolically agreeing with John's message and fulfilling all righteousness by coming under the preaching that said, Behold, the kingdom of God is coming. But he's not agreeing he's a sinner. He doesn't get saved by baptism. Nobody ever did. Jesus is baptized as a symbol of his agreement with John's message, just as we are baptized as a symbol of our agreement with Jesus' message. And so on page 5 then, just simply, again, it ends on the bottom of page 5 with that very point, agreeing with God's message and his messengers. And on page 6... It has to do with full immersion, and in particular, the metaphor that Jesus says, I have a baptism to go through, and I'm going to have to drink the whole cup. He mixes metaphors, but the point of it is simply this. I'm going to be all the way immersed into death. And just like water baptism is all the way immersed, because water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. And that is, one last time, the water, the person. We believe in Christ, but the water is, I used to be outside of Christ. I used to not be, I could not save myself. But the picture is, I've trusted in Christ, and therefore I am baptized into Him. And I am in Christ, and my sins are washed away. And thus, when I come up, I'm going to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. And so, old life, in Christ, living a new life. And it shows that you are in Christ and that your sins are forgiven and they are covered. Well, guys, let's pray.